Welcome back, podcast listeners, to another installment of the Ask the Mormon Sex Therapist series. Uh, it's been a little while since we've had some questions answered on, on the podcast. Uh, Mike's been having his episodes going along, but we are back together with Jennifer and Laurel. Jennifer, Laurel, please say hello. Hi. Hi. Glad to have you back, and we have some new questions. Before we get started, uh, we have two questions that are kind of contrasting in... Uh, the topics that they talk about. But before we get to those questions, Jennifer, do you have any announcements or any sales that are coming up? We're coming up really close to Valentine's Day. Yes, we have a Valentine's Day sale that's going on that should go until I think the 17th of February on all of the online courses. And probably most people are familiar with the online courses, but I there are courses on um, how to have a better uh, sexual and emotional relationship, as well as a women's sexuality and desire course, and a course as well about how to talk to your LDS kids about sex. And they're all designed for an LDS audience in mind. So those courses are quite popular, and they're on sale just a couple times a year. And so this is one of the sales that we have and makes a nice Valentine's Day gift. And then the other announcement is that I will be doing for the first time a women's retreat that's three days long where all the meals are paid and you can stay um, at the retreat center. It's in Oregon. I think it's about a 45-minute drive east of Portland, I think is where it is. And that's happening May 3rd through 5th. Uh, May 3rd is when the class is actually, or the workshop actually starts, uh, but people would be arriving on the evening of the 2nd. And so I think it's going to be really, really awesome. And there's room for about 50 people. Okay, about 50 people. Yeah, and advertising for that go up soon. So you'll be uh, up there how many days? So it'll be um, three days. So people will be arriving on a Wednesday evening. Then it's all day Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Okay. There'll be yoga. It'll be really fun. A movie night. (laughs) (laughs) A movie night. Cool. So you've you've done the workshops. You have the on, you de- yes. developed the online classes starting a couple of years yes. ago, and you've kind of edited them and improved them over time. So this is a That's new right. thing. This uh, this is a new thing. What the workshop that I've been doing, the women's workshop, has been great, and it's two two intense days. Um, but a lot of women talked about. I just want more time to digest and to have more time to ask questions and get feedback from you and talk to other women. Um, and so this is a way of, of both expanding the content some and also having more time with the content. So it's, um, I, I think it's going to be remarkably fun and enlightening for people. So, right. so that's May 3rd through 5th. The advertising hopefully will be up by the time this is released. We're doing a workshop in Wellesley, Massachusetts, a two-day women's workshop. And there's a lot of people in the eastern half of the U.S. who've asked if I'd be willing to do one there. And I may be doing one in the Midwest here in the Chicago area in the fall. So the um, the Wellesley, Massachusetts one is May 11th and 12th. But that's all. should, you know, be able to find all that on my website under the workshops tab. Okay, great. Well, that's exciting stuff that's uh, coming down the pike. Yeah. I guess from this point, we'll just go into the first question. This mm-hmm. first question, as we discussed on the last episode, for those who've uh, caught that one, is about abuse and coping with that. So, Laurel, uh, would you go ahead and read question number one? 
My question is about my lack of desire in my marriage. I am married to a very good man and we get along very well. He's a good dad and a good husband, but I really struggle to desire sex in the way he would like for me to. It feels like he always wants it and I feel like whatever amount of sex I offer, it will never be enough. He hates that I'm not very present during sex and get upset about it, but it's hard for me to not feel used by him. Lately, he's been less interested in sex because he hates feeling like I'm just putting up with him. Sometimes I wonder why we even have to deal with sex at all. I would be completely okay if I never had to have it again. We have taken your sexual intimacy course, and he says that I have never chosen him in our 20 years of marriage. I think this is all complicated by the fact that my cousin molested me for several years starting at age eight. He was about six years older than me. I never told my mom because I don't think she would have believed me or done anything about it if she had known. She was and continues to be a very selfish person that thinks the world revolves around her, and my father cheated on my mom and left us when I was young. The abuse by my cousin stopped when he moved away from home, but I think all of this makes me hate sex. Do you have any advice on how I can have more desire given my strong dislike of it? Okay. Um, so good question and, and hard uh, question. I think, you know, I'm just trying to think about how to parse through this um, in the best way, but I think I'll just start with that you know, the wife is talking about her husband as being a really good man. Right, a man that she ostensibly trusts, but she doesn't want to be close to him. Right? She doesn't really want him to be with her, not fully. And so, you know, at least for me as a therapist, my first question is like, why does she not want to really be with him? Right. Is it about who he is? Is it about who she is? You know, it's clearly in part about the fact that sex or her first experiences around sex were exploitative and destructive. Um, and so that clearly has an impact. But my first way of thinking about it is why does she not want him close to her? Um, you know, she's talking about um, him as being really trustworthy and good. and. So my, I think the first thing I'm trying to figure out in my mind is, is he as good as she's saying he is? Because sometimes when people have come out of exploitative situations, and the thing is that this is not just a person who had really loving good parents who were there for her, but she had um, a cousin who exploited her for a short period of time but then had parents and family that knew about it, cared about it, would do something about it because the impact of that is much, much less because you have a negative experience, but you're surrounded by the reality that people will look after you. They'll care for you, that people um, that are closest to you um, are going to do what is needed for your benefit because it's not just about have you ever been sexually assaulted or abused. It's about who was that person and how were the people that had the biggest responsibility to you? How did they handle that reality? Because that's going to have a much, that's going to be a very strong determining factor in how it actually shapes your sexual life down the road. Um, she gets the double whammy of feeling that her core relationships are, are essentially exploitative in their own right. They aren't, her parents aren't sexually exploitative towards her, 
but she tracks pretty quickly as a little girl, it sounds like, that they are not there for her, that her dad's self-serving and leaves the family. And she sees her mom as self-serving too, that, that she's not, you know, she's, she says part of the reason that she doesn't talk about it or didn't say anything about it was she wasn't clear that her mom would either believe her or do anything about it. So, um, you know, that kind of psychological impact is that basically human beings take advantage of each other, of each other, or they self-serve first, care second, if, if at all. And so, She's contrasting that with a man that she says she really trusts. Um, and so I think what I would first want to figure out is, is this man as trustworthy as she is suggesting he is? Because what sometimes people do is they will go and marry someone that they want to have be their prince, in a sense, who's going to ride up on the horse and take them away and give them a life. And so they... You know, I got a few questions around sexual abuse. And, you know, one of the other questions that came in was kind of quickly rushing from her exploitative home into the arms of another exploitative man who at first looked really kind and compassionate and savior-like. And she wanted that so badly that she was blind to who he really was, that he ultimately was exploitative too. And, you know, was cheating on her and so on those kinds of things. And so, so is this husband as kind and as good as she is saying, or is she tracking him to be more self-serving or untrustworthy than she wants to acknowledge to herself? Um, and I'm not saying that that's the case, but I think that's the first thing to ascertain is, is there more data to support that this is not a man you would want close to you? And that's part of her dislike and distrust. And, she is really feeling used because that's really how he's relating to her and to her sexuality. Um, but let's just assume for the sake of this question, because of the way she's writing it, that he really is a, as good a man as she's saying he is and that she really does have a kind friend. But she doesn't want to deal with her sexual anxiety and she doesn't want to choose him. Like it sounds like he's saying, at least is how he's reading the situation. And I do think sometimes people do that, that they actually do marry a nice guy. And they do marry someone who really is better. Um, but they don't want, how to say it, they, they've come out of an environment where it, people are exploitative. People are basically unsafe. And then paradoxically, they, in a sense, take advantage in their own right in the marriage by saying, I don't want to deal with my sexuality. I don't want to be uncomfortable for your benefit. I don't want to deal with my anxieties. And I'm just going to make it that you're hedonistic or you're always trying to get something from me and sort of say, you're the bad one. I'm the good one because I don't like sex but never really deal with their sexuality and create something loving and decent in it. That essentially they're being offered something more loving and kind than what they're willing to return. And I don't know if that's the case with this person or not, but, you know, for example, I had a client where she really was married to a very nice guy and she would always try to turn his sexual desire into this sort of natural man, hedonistic, uh, perpetrative frame when 
it really was not fair or right. She, what she really was doing was saying, I want to kind of always use the fact that I had negative sexual experiences in my past and use the fact that I feel pressured to fend you off and to push you back and to make it look like you're the bad one. When in reality, I just don't want to deal with my sexuality. I don't want to deal with my anxiety about it. I don't really want to love you wholeheartedly. And so, you know, this client of mine also had a, um, an, a some abuse in her past and she'd kind of use that as a way of, of pushing him back and keeping it alive in the marriage. And I'm not in any way denying that abuse can have a really negative impact on people and what they anticipate and who they become. But what I'm saying is a little different than that. She'd sort of use it as a way of not really loving in return the man that she knew loved her. And he wasn't perfect by any stretch, but she knew that she was taking advantage of the goodness and the friendship by keeping it in a frame that only hedonistic people wanted sex. Um, and so when she confronted herself on that reality and she really saw how she was taking advantage of her husband, this client of mine, you know, she really created something different through her sexuality than what she had experienced, um, in her, in the sexual, uh, abuse experiences that she'd had and really learned how to start loving through her sexuality. So, you know, I, Assuming that this question is sim is similar, that what she may want to look at is if she is using her anticipation of exploitation, just sort of as a knee jerk to kind of say, and even though it feels better with you and I like your friendship, I'm going to still put it that way because it's partly what I anticipate and it's an easy way to assume that's what people really are but mask from herself that she's doing the same thing that she is in many ways, not really loving and choosing her husband, like he's saying and creating something qualitatively different through choosing the good man that she uh, is saying that he is. I mean, I would still go back to if he's not as good a man as you're saying, <laughs> then of course it's different, but to create something loving in sexuality, which is really the antidote to sexual abuse, you have to really deal with the marriage you're in and what is happening there, both what's coming towards you and what you're offering in return and whether or not you're using your sexuality to create something good in that marriage or not, which, which is not me saying that you should be offering great sex to an exploitative person, right? It may mean that you deal with the exploitativeness in the marriage or get out of the marriage. But, um, um, but seeing, you know, I think a lot of times in the way we talk about women and sexuality is in, is, is because women have been exploited so much and because women have had so little social power. Um, that in some ways in response, we almost co-construct or collude in the idea of women as just passive people in sexuality rather than co-creators of the meaning in their sexual relationships. And, um, and so 
you know, if this woman were in an exploitative relationship that she wanted to see as better than it really was, then of course what I would do as a therapist is wake her up to the the hust- to the cruelty in the marriage that she is instinctively trying to distance herself from and help her see it more explicitly so that she can really start making decisions for herself that are protective to her and instead of throwing her strength away or hoping for some guy to be a better person than he really is if she really is in a good marriage then it's about who helping her wake up to herself to see what it is she really wants to create or make with this person and with her sexuality as an antidote to the destructive ways of being in relationship that she experienced as a child. When I was listening, when you talked about one of your former clients um, who had, who realized she'd been using her past experiences to uh, shut off kind of the sexual relationship in her own marriage. Uh, Mm -hmm. But then when she realized it, she started building up a new what exactly you said, but basically a new way of understanding and experiencing sex. Um, mm-hmm. So on a practical level, how how does one do that? Well, for this client, she really kind of came into a recognition that hurt, you know, it hurt for her to see herself, that she was doing the same self-service that she had experienced in her own family. And she was doing it to this good man. <laughs> And I think it was so different than the way she told herself that it was, you know, that that she was the good one because she hated sex in a sense. She'd kind of conflated it with sex. That when she really woke up to it and she saw that he had been like waiting, you know, to be chosen for a decade, you know, or however long they had been married, that she started to really choose him. Now, it sounds really simple, although in another way, it's really hard. To say, I am going to love you. You've loved me all this time. Not perfectly, but you have loved me and cared about me. And I have held back and not really cared about you. And I am going to really care for you. And so instead of being a passive participant sexually where you just are sort of not there but not there, which many men, well, many high desire people experience with their low desire spouse. Uh, that she was bringing heart to the marriage and to the sexual relationship. And now she was an actor in her own life and an actor in her sexuality. And as soon as you become an actor, this is what what my dissertation was on, was whether or not you're an agent in your sexual uh, life. Uh, And when you become an actor and you're creating something and expressing something through your sexuality, well, it's an entirely different experience. And her husband could feel it. And he could feel her caring about him for like the first time in years of marriage. And he could feel that her heart was showing up and she was facing herself and wanted to offer better to him. And it's just like melting for him. Like he was just so grateful and so in love with her for being the kind of woman that would face herself and really start to offer something different. And then she was feeling better about who she was, right? Because she could transform her own relationship to her sexuality and to who she was and what she was going to offer in her life. And so um, she was taking safety by putting herself in a passive frame. But then she was always anxious, always anxious, always uncomfortable, always unsettled, 
want, taking safety in the idea that I'm being acted upon in the marriage. I'm not an actor, but then always feeling powerless and uh, anxious. So when she started to lay claim to who was she going to be and what kind of person was she going to be in loving him, getting out of this idea of putting him up and her down. Well, then she found a whole different level of strength in herself. And I mean, that couple's doing fantastic at this point. Um, I had one follow-up question on mm -hmm. that. Um, I'd say then on the, on the flip side of that, um, cause, uh, it sounds like from what the questioner said is that they're, they're both engaged in figuring this out. Um, though you also brought up the point that it can be any number of things. Um, on the husband's side, then what would be, I just can imagine, like, I'm sure if you heard that answer, you'd be like, yeah, <laughs> you know, but like you pointed out, there might be stuff he's not aware that he's doing um, that, that can be playing into that. So what would, what are ways that um, in this particular situation yeah. is the husband that he yeah. can nurture that without making it selfish, that he can actually, you know, well, support. Well, any, anytime a woman is throwing her strength away, um, any real addressing of that in the marriage is not selfish. <laughs> Meaning it's good for the woman to not do that for herself, right? Mm -hmm. But it is tricky in the husband's position. I mean, one thing that it sounds like this husband was doing historically was putting up with the mercy sex. Like she's, she, I think she puts it in the question, something like, you know, no matter how often I kind of give it to him, it's still not enough. You know, she's, she's, she's relating to her sexuality like it's a commodity. So she's framing it in the frame of exploitation or use of people. So it's like, no matter how much I kind of give him the sex, it's never enough. Oh, wow. Like, when is this guy going to get filled up, you know, with enough sex? <laughs> <laughs> and so she's kind of diminishing her own sexuality and she's putting it in a frame that makes it like he's the hedonistic bad one. But it's, um, but hang on, I just lost my larger point in a second. Um, oh, and so it sounds like at least for a while he was accepting that as something worthy. Like he's kind of accepting that he's not being chosen. He's taking the commodity form of sex. And it sounds like he, he starts to change that in the question that at a certain point he's saying, I'm not doing that anymore. Um, but I think perhaps the reason she's starting to ask the question is because he isn't willing to do it in that frame anymore. That makes sense. So he's saying, I don't, yeah. I, for a while, I'm willing to take it as just like, okay, every few days I get, you know, the prize of you putting up with having sex with me. <laughs> but maybe I'm participating in me never being chosen. Maybe I'm participating in keeping it at the level that you're throwing me a bone as opposed to really caring and choosing me. Mm -hmm. And so probably if, you know, again, I don't have all the information I would need, but if he's stepping back from that, not in a passive aggressive way, which some men, some higher desire people do when they hear me talk about that, not in a self-righteous way, uh, but like, I really don't want um, you to throw me a bone. I, I want to be chosen. And if it's not what this is about, I don't want it. That often will pressure the person to kind of 
confront that they're not really um, the, the kind of sexual relationship they have created up to that point and whether or not they're going to create something qualitatively better. Well, I don't really have any, you know, I was just listening on that one. I don't have any specific thoughts, but uh, I think uh, it's, a, it's a lot to think about. It sounds like a, a tricky situation, as a lot of these questions do sound with the limited information that we have. Um, but I think we can move on to our next question, which is quite a bit different. Um, still has to do with sex, so there's always the common threads there, and I'll go ahead and read that one. Dear Doctor, My wife and I have been married for almost a year, and what a year it's been. Sexually, we have had our ups and downs. Just like most couples, we started out having sex pretty frequently in the beginning, but then my wife's sex drive plummeted. When I tried talking to her about it, she would say she didn't know why, and she would do everything she could to change the subject. It was like that for many months, and it got to a point where maybe we would have sex two to three times a month. I tried prying for more information as to why she was losing her desire and I wasn't getting anywhere. She would sometimes acknowledge that she might have a problem but wouldn't do anything about it, or she would tell me that my drive was too high and I just had to deal with it. It was causing quite a bit of tension between us. Then one day this past month, she sat down and opened up to me. She said that at the beginning, she was enjoying sex because it was new, but then after a while, it started getting a bit boring. Things were getting predictable and almost mechanical, and it wasn't stimulating her brain much. She then told me that my people-pleasing demeanor during sex was also a turn-off. She was getting tired having her pleasure interrupted by me, constantly asking, Is this okay? How does this feel? Am I hurting you? She said that she appreciated that I would do those things, but it was getting a bit excessive. She then said, I have two requests in regard to sex. One, let's try to be creative and try new things while being intimate. And two, I want you to be more assertive during sex. So here are my questions. What are ways that you suggest changing things up in the bedroom? We've tried vibrators and we like them and we use them every once in a while. We've tried different locations in the house. My wife likes to wear lingerie, and I enjoy that as well. My wife is not as is not comfortable with role play and is hesitant about oral either receiving or giving. We've tried different positions. Is there any other things that you suggest we can do to spice things up? And my other question, how can I be more assertive in my lovemaking? I've tried looking up online how to be more assertive in bed, and everything comes up with Fifty Shades of Grey techniques, which neither of us is comfortable or interested in. My wife has mentioned that she likes to be domineered in the sense that she likes me to take charge, not always ask permission, and hold her down during intense moments. I'm really easygoing and people-pleasing by nature, and it is really difficult for me to take charge, especially during intimacy. Domineering actions are so foreign to me, and I feel like any attempt to try to be more assertive is ingenuine, and I feel a bit of shame because I remember a quote, I think, from President Hunter, how we shouldn't be domineering in our intimate relations. I feel really bad because my dear wife has such a little request and I feel like it may be a bit out of my comfort zone, but I really want to be able to fill that need for her. So how do I expand my comfort zone so I can fulfill my significant other's needs? Okay, so great question. And I mean, good for your wife. I want to start with that for speaking up and saying kind of exposing that she's not sexually broken. I think a lot of women have picked up on the idea that good women are less interested in sex and it 
and that it's actually kind of acceptable to just say, you know, I'm not that into it and just kind of not deal with it as opposed to doing what your wife did in this question in this what you're talking about in the question, which is to actually start to articulate what it is that she does desire to really make the sexual relationship better, even though for a lot of women and men, it would be hard to talk about what she's saying, which is, I want to be dominated more. I want you to take charge. So, um, so I think that's great. Um, let me just think where to start with the question. I think in terms of novelty, I think that it's good that you're already trying some new things. And I think, you know, it, you, the fact that you're not comfortable to role play or I think oral sex is what you said. You know, I think that's normal that anything that's outside of our repertoire, at least at first, can feel foreign or awkward or uncertain. But I think couples that are really committed to a good sexual relationship are willing to push their comfort zone a little, uh, to try things um, and do things that, you know, are a little outside of what they would envision for themselves, but create more novelty, create another way of knowing different aspects of yourself and different aspects of your spouse. And, um, you know, I've received other questions, of course, around how far is too far in terms of novelty and all that. And, you know, I always come back to basically, if you're trying to create an intimate, loving, um, gregarious marriage, you want to just make sure that whatever you choose is actually adding to that, that kind of um, excitement and trust and friendship because of the things that you do together. So, you know, there's books out there like um, 101 Great Nights, Nights of Sex, uh, where they have an app for it, where you can like, every day you get a new thing you can try and the husband has his own set of ideas and the woman has her own set of ideas so that you can play with surprising one another with different things. And, you know, there's other things out there like calendars and things that just give you um, fun and funny ideas that you can at least consider. But I think one of the ways is exactly what your wife is doing in this, which is to start talking to you more about who she is and exposing her eroticism to you more. Um, and so, again, I, I think I talked about this somewhat in episode 21, but I think that it can be confusing, especially in light of the first question today of, and all that's going on in the larger culture around the Me Too movement and more women speaking up about sexual um, exploitation and abuse, that how, do, how does one make sense of a wife wanting to be dominated and how does a nice guy like you make sense of doing that? And, you know, the questioner is asking about, you know, the, the Howard W. Hunter quote about not wanting to dominate in our marital relationships. And he's absolutely right in the sense that you don't want to exploit. You don't want to harm, take advantage of another person. Uh, you don't want to be destructive. But I think that's not what the woman in this question is actually talking about at all. What she's talking about is she wants to be able to surrender sexually. She wants what many women know is kind of fundamental to great sex, is to be able to have a confident partner 
who really is has a kind of metabolized aggression. Um, it's not an aggression that's destructive. It's a, an aggression that's based in desire. It's very different. It's not an aggression that's about wanting to literally dominate and possess someone. It's an aggression that's about deep embodied desire for another person. It's to be on the other side of that is extremely pleasurable for a woman. And so when the husband is, you know, saying, is this hurt? Is that okay? Is this hurt? You know, you that she's saying, you know, a certain amount of that is, is good. Of course, like I, I don't, I want to know that you care about me. I don't want you to just like whatever you want. You don't care how it impacts me. But if you're too anxious, too careful, you're putting it in the frame of caretaking almost and gentleness that the kind of fundamental dynamic of eroticism and sexual passion is being killed. It, it gets more into the kind of caretaking um, friendship zone and then it's no longer sexy and appealing. And so you want to care about your wife, of course, but you want to care about her enough that you're willing to try on a different role and to really, um, in some ways, be willing to give her the gift of taking charge sexually and loving her through that kind of um, willingness to allow her to surrender to the pleasure. Um, I think when you brought up the 50 shades of gray techniques, I'm not sure precisely if that's like a thing out there, um, but what I'm imagining it is, is it has to do more with like sadomasochistic um, forms of sexual play. And, you know, of course the two of you can decide, you know, some, you know, very loving couples will do things like where they will put, you know, furry handcuffs on the wife and, you know, she doesn't, really feel dominated. That's what's so paradoxical about it. It's about playing with a power dynamic that nobody really believes, okay? Because if it were real, it would be aversive. It's because it isn't real. And it's about playing with, again, as I think I talked about in the last episode, that women who've grown up in a culture that doesn't allow them to own sexuality, doesn't allow them to be the desirers, it's a way of being given pleasure without having to take ownership of the of the pleasure you're being given. It's also the the dominance has the quality of this is how profound her desirability is, is that, you know, he um, he has to be with me. He can't control himself. I'm that compelling for him. That kind of frame for women is very exciting. Um, caretaking in sex in that sort of parent-child way or like that, you know, overly concerned way is not sexy. So, you know, I think it's a great act of love to try on roles that are outside of what you're comfortable with <laughs> for the benefit of the spouse, for the benefit of the sexual relationship. And when you say it's disingenuous, well, it is only until you get used to it. <laughs> you know, it is only until you get more comfortable with trying things that are outside of your comfort zone. You think about the first time you ever made out with someone, the first time you ever, it's outside of your comfort zone. It doesn't yet feel like something that's really you yet. But then the more you do it and the more you become comfortable in it, then you start to feel more comfortable. Many people feel very uncomfortable with role play at first, but 
oftentimes the more people do it, they become more comfortable in that realm. So, um, you know, I really see it as, you know, I remember working with one of the couples I worked with early on where he was a really nice guy and she knew it and she knew it and she liked being married to a really nice guy. But when it came to sex, she wanted to sort of move out of that realm where she, she wanted him to sort of take over, take responsibility. He wanted her to call, um, she wanted him to call her in the middle of the day and tell her what he was going to do to her that night and things like that. And it was really outside of his comfort zone. Uh, but he loved her enough that he's like, I'm willing to be uncomfortable. I'm willing to get more comfortable at it. And, you know, she saw it as an act of love and she saw it as exciting too to see him willing to do it. So, so, you know, I say good for her for speaking up, good for your wife for speaking up and good for you for caring about her enough to try it. So, um, yeah. So I, I hope you have fun playing with all that. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting that this question comes up because it's something I think, I think we've discussed this a couple of times and I think, uh, like Esther Perel in her book with the, the idea of mm-hmm. like novelty and uh, security mm-hmm. competing for uh, passion right. or either competing for or killing passion. That's right. Uh, bring up this dynamic where if you're constantly caring for it, it's like if she had the flu, she would really appreciate you, you know, caring for her that way. But sex is one of those realms where you kind of want to get away from your day to day normal yes. behavior, kind of like, Kind of like sports, yes. I think. With sports, you go out to play football or even win a race or something like that. You're not going to be polite and say, oh, would you like to go by right here? Let me get out of your way. Right. It's a different – It's there's nothing unacceptable about being assertive or aggressive if you're you know, trying to win a marathon or a 5K or whatever you yes. know, you're competing in. And sex is kind of along those lines where it's this kind of separate compartment, yes. I guess. Yes, it is. And and I would say it's not an aggression that serves the self. It's an aggression that's about the desirability of the other person. Mm-hmm. So it's a pleasurable, again, it's like a metabolized aggression. It's not really aggressive. Mm-hmm. It's about the desire and desirability. So many people long to feel desired like that. You know, the higher desire partners in a couple often feel like I never get to feel like craved. I want to feel wanted. I want to feel like you want to rip my clothes off me and I never get to feel that. That's that's what the wife is talking about. I want to feel like I um like I'm so compelling to you. So it's a pro-social very positive aggression. When I t- in my uh, couples sexuality course, I talk about love and lust. I actually use the word lust to say that lust is really the stronger is the strong force in a marriage love is the weak force meaning they both matter and i'm using a word that's a little bit complicated because we talk about lust in the church often as a negative thing because what we're we're talking it's the same thing we do with sex which was we kind of conflate embodied desire with evil because lust what i mean is embodied desire it's really the glue in marriage. You want marriage 
has to sit on a foundation of love. You have to have the basic concern for the well-being of the other person. But the thing that really creates the excitement and the pleasure and the aliveness in a marriage is the lust. And again, by lust, I mean the desire, the choosing. I don't mean what we often are talking about in church when we say lust is sexuality that's exploitative. And of course, that's not what I mean by that. That's, you know, when we use sexuality or the body to harm, that is always evil. It's always bad. Um, I'm parsing it out and saying that embodied desire, depending on what we're doing with that embodied desire, depending on what it's creating, is uh, can be a very, very good thing. And so when you, marriage is fundamentally about a relationship of choosing, not a relationship of obligation or of biological connection like our other relationships are. And so when what makes marriage so special is this person desires me, chooses me. When you stay really happy in a marriage, that sense of desire and choosing and uh, wanting another person is alive and well. And so that's that's partly what I think the wife is talking about in this question or in this um, scenario is saying, I want you to stop being Mr. Polite brother-like person <laughs> and I want you to act like my sexual partner I want you to act like a man who's crazy about me yeah I want you to want me yes mm -hmm. to quote cheap trick <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly exactly so and then I think that um I think the other piece in it that I probably would just mention is that I think a lot of LDS men men in general perhaps have been taught this negative idea that sex is something you do to a woman. And it and good men, it makes them ambivalent about their sexuality. They don't, they're afraid they are gonna harm her, that she's really not that sexual. So he has to kind of do something to her that's potentially negative and harmful if he's gonna have any pleasure. And it sets good men up into a like a bind internally. Yeah. I don't want to harm her. I like the pleasure. It feels good. But am I being destructive? Is this what does she want it? Are you OK? At Rather than seeing their sexuality when it's about love and embodied desire for this woman that you have chosen and care for as a unequivocally good thing. Good for both people. And, you know, I mean, you do want to be aware of your spouse and how they're receiving what you're doing. That's about loving them. You want to be, you know, attuned to them um, because, you know, when that um, assertive sexual energy is being fully received. Right. You know, when they are surrendering to it. So you don't want to be obtuse, of course. Yeah. But you don't want to be hyper fixated on am I harming you either. Right. I, I can see how it can be a fine line between, you know, being, you know, having this metabolized aggression and expressing that in your sex life. And, you know, that's well and good. But then there's, you know, if you go a couple steps further, uh, right. then it's more you're using this person as an object for your own pleasure. Right. You know, and, it, you know, I'm in some ways reluctant to say that many women want this because misogynists use that idea yeah to mm -hmm. basically say women want the destructive sex that they're delivering 
I don't know, just when I think about it, there, there is, um, yeah, there's this, this line and it's, it's hard because like our culture doesn't have a lot of good examples of this. Um, it's, it's these extremes, um, that are, you know, being in media are often created by men without an understanding of the other side, because I think in, in a healthy situation, there is a power to surrender, um, mm-hmm. Like, even if you are surrendering, Absolutely. especially if there's this sense of, like, trust within that surrender, there's a, a, yes. a power that comes with it that is different than this often media portrayal of domination. It's not, it's not domination. Right. Um, and That's right. And yeah, it's a surrender because you track who the person really is and you're able to play out a role in a sense. You're able to try on different aspects of yourselves as a couple. Um, and it's a way of like surrendering to the love and desire and care that's being offered to you sexually. And many women want this. This a lot of women don't want sex because they're getting bad sex. They're not getting that kind of sex. <laughs> and so a lot of women are rejecting the bad sex that they're getting. That's all about the man or the super cautious guy. Rather than mm-hmm. the man that really chooses them, really likes them, you know, is really into them, and they can surrender to all that passion. That's good sex. Yeah, and it, yeah, because I think that's the power plays. Like, there's a difference between I am ravishing you because I'm in control and I want to do this to you, as opposed to almost you come by who you are that I am just right. magnetized to you. Yeah. And uh, similarly, Laurel, what I'd say is that even in the sort of role play that some people might do where they're pretending that, that it really is like, you know, the person's, you know, my husband's role playing, breaking into my apartment or something like that, you know, to <laughs> give me pleasure. Um, <laughs> that in the, in reality, the power is the woman feels that she has the power. Mm-hmm. because she's so compelling it's like it's like women playing with the narratives that they've been given but they don't actually they are only pretending to feel powerless they mm-hmm. actually know they they're that compelling they know they're that you know that desirable and they're able to surrender to all the pleasure without taking any responsibility for all the pleasure so it's not people don't actually want to feel powerless you know, nobody wants to actually feel that they have no power, but it's you can surrender because you know you do ultimately have power. That's that's the paradox in it. Mm-hmm. You surrender because I, you trust the other person and you can play with an idea and sort of open up because you know that it's safe to do it. So mm-hmm. tell me if this is a bad <laughs> analogy. Is it like going to see a scary <laughs> movie where you know... Mm-hmm. Everything's fine, yeah. but it's thrilling. Yeah, I think that is probably exactly, okay. uh, that's probably a good analogy. It's because you track that you really, you know there's no real disproportion of power. In fact, couples that really have an egalitarian relationship can play with these things very comfortably. People that have a very strong sense of self, they can play with these ideas because they really have a self intact and they have an intimate relationship that's intact so they it's just you can play with it if it's if there's a real imbalance i think these things feel very aversive to people to many people 
Mm-hmm. You know, there was some research that was just, my husband was telling me about it, and I, it was something about people lying, something about people always lie. I can't remember the name of the article he was reading, but it's some guy that's like looked at what people actually look at in pornography as opposed to what people report. And I think that uh, one of the things that he was saying is that um, basically that women, the thing that never gets reported, but if you look at what is actually being looked at, women are much more likely to look up pornography that's aggressive towards women than men are. And and again, this is like he says, you know, he like hesitates to even say that because uh, harmful men will use that idea. But uh, it is sort of speaking to this idea that in a culture in which women have not have been their values been placed around the issue of desirability. And been told that they're not allowed to desire. I think are often looking for, they often are drawn to a kind of eroticism that's around the loss of control in this way of being desirable. Overtly loss of control, but covertly full control. Like Fifty Shades of Grey, people were horrified that women are going to see this movie so much, you know, when it's all about, you know, ostensibly a very misogynistic frame, but she's his sex slave. But in another frame, the this billionaire, I mean, I've never seen the movie or read the book, to be, but I just read reviews of it. <laughs> so I'm hoping I'm getting the characters right. I swear I haven't. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, you know, this billionaire who's got all the power in the world, you know, is that, that the woman is that compelling, that desirable that he has to possess her. He has to have her. And yet he's got all this power in the world, but he can't, you know, and he just will do anything to consume her. So it, paradoxically, she's the powerful one in the story. You know, I, I don't know where I picked this up, but I heard that my understanding is that the early romance novels had a lot mm-hmm. more non-consensual um, sex scenes. Mm. And that was mm. appealing at the time because... It was more widespread that w- women did not have their own desire, and, and yes, uh, so they couldn't. Yeah, really so it's like a way their head of just you know having sex with someone. It had to be okay. He's going to have sex with me, and so now yes. I guess I might as well enjoy it. Well, well, right, something <laughs> like that. Enjoy it. Totally, yeah. That so, makes so what we need then are better smutty novels. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to do some reviews and see if things have progressed. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, it is interesting. I I actually had the thought. I can't remember what movie I was watching, but I actually realized, like, just because I I try to I, I pay a lot of attention to what what social assumptions are being made in in media narratives, like film and TV and all that, um, and and what that says. Um, but I was thinking of like how rare it was that I. To, to see a movie where the woman's sexual desire for someone was, por- was e- well, for one, even portrayed um, and portrayed in a positive way as like she's seeking an equal partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's right. her Almost that she desires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just realized, I'm like, there are almost, I, I, I find it in video games, honestly. <laughs> like, I think right. there's a lot of modern video games that actually have that. And that 
that's something I think I'm, one of the very sad things for men is, you know, as I talk about in my dissertation research and and so on, is that, you know, men are taught about desire and women are taught about desirability. But the, the bad thing for women is that they're not taught about desire, the legitimacy and value of desire in their lives and sexually. But the other bad part of it is that men aren't re, don't don't get to experience desirability in the way that women mm-hmm. do that men are often sort of having to kind of shoulder sexuality and having to be the ones who are the desires and the um, the ones longing. And as great as that feels for us women, you know, <laughs> I think men <laughs> often don't, you know, women who've been taught to kind of bury their sexuality and their overt desire often long to feel really wanted, craved. Mm-hmm. And it's sad that mm-hmm. a lot of men don't get to feel that. Yeah. So... Well, I think both of those questions uh, provided a lot of uh, things to think about in your, you know, in sexual relationships, and it was a good discussion. So, um, Laurel and Jennifer, of course, thank you both for coming on the podcast and doing another episode of the Ask the Mormon Sex Therapist. Thanks, you guys. Thanks. Thank you.